This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality, a a view of the path that integrates the shadow elements, the light elements of being, to unify ourselves into greater wholeness, from which we can apprehend the sacred, the sublime, in our everyday life conditions. So welcome to the show. And um, today's talk, which I'm giving you, is a reflection about the ongoing series of reflections I've been giving around the conditioning of the self. And in this talk, I try to present the idea that when we start to wake up to our conditioning, the the habituated patterns of our being that get instilled from our family, from our culture, from our politics, from our technological world, all the forms of conditioning we have, when our sense of self wakes up to that, there's a way that there's a bit of a rude awakening. We see things about ourselves we don't necessarily identify with or see as being who we are, but we become conscious of them. And and that consciousness of the way our self is conditioned, I try to suggest in this talk, is similar to um, becoming aware of your cultural conditioning when you go travel. If you travel to another culture, as I have done a few times in my life, when you travel and you, encultru- and you encounter a different culture, you in- often encounter culture shock. There's this kind of rude awakening of how you norm- normally take things to be and like, customs and ways of doing things. And you're in shock in the, in the face of a culture that handles things and does things very differently. And I try to suggest here that meditation is a gentle way of adapting to, quote-unquote, the shock of the way things are from the conditioned culture of a sense of self that sees itself as separate, independent, or isolated from the flow of events that are occurring. So this is a kind of a an attempt to describe a, 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 a facet of the the spiritual path that can be challenging at times, but to bring some lightness and humor to it. So I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And before I give you today's talk, I just want to say that if you'd like to support the show, if you'd like to support the work that Terry and I do, and particularly the podcast and some of the offerings we give, if you'd like to support the show, um, you can do that in a handful of ways. Some are very easy. You can share a link to an episode with a friend. You can write a review on your favorite podcast app about the show. Um, both of those are would be greatly appreciated. Um, a few weeks back, I gave an episode with Alex Dorr, who is the CEO of a functional mushroom company called Mushroom Revival. So if you'd like to explore functional mushrooms, cordyceps, reishi, lion's mane, if you'd like to uh, explore or, or try out uh, these functional adap- adaptive mushrooms for your health, um, which have been used in Chinese medicine and, and um, ancient China, Chinese culture for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, um, do check that out. There's a link in the show notes for Alex's site. And um, if you purchase any of his functional mushroom formula, um, we as an affiliate will get a, a percentage of that uh, sale. So that's one way to support the show, and I appreciate that. But um, the other one, which you've probably heard before, is that you can practice with me and Terry in an ongoing way and participate in our online community called the Riverbird Sangha. And this is a a way to practice yin yoga, qigong, and meditation as three interwoven practices for apprehending the everyday sublime. 
So if you'd like to practice along, check out the link in the show notes for the Sangha, and uh, we welcome you as a participant in our, in our journey together. But without further ado, I now give you today's talk, Culture Shock of Self. So f- tonight, um, I'd like to continue on with one of the themes on the table, like our Dharma table in conversation and practice. And that is the theme of how our sense of self is conditioned, how our sense of self becomes conditioned. And I tried to give a few examples of this uh, in the from my own life, particularly around growing up with the kind of family I did and the kind of conditioning I became aware of from that family of origin uh, sort of culture. But there are many ways I think that our sense of self is conditioned up just beyond, like not just exclusively to our family, but, but including our society, the, the political culture we're in, the economic systems we're cult, uh, conditioned by. Um, and, and then more deeply from that, I would, I would say we're also deeply conditioned by the forces of natural selection, which go back millions of years um, in, our, in our conditioning process. But whatever level, I would say, whatever level of conditioning uh, we possess, um, I would say there's a way that our practice, our meditation practice, provides a a venue, it provides a a kind of a a laboratory within which this conditioning becomes conscious, becomes more conscious. And this isn't, I wouldn't say this is not any kind of magical process in a way, if you think about it, because when we meditate, what we essentially do is sit down with a sincere intention to not move or to move minimally. It's okay to move a little bit, but to move minimally and to essentially watch what we experience, to observe what we experience while we're sitting. So we, we come into an, uh, an incredibly simplified environment so that we can see the kind of the force or the, the currents or the tendencies or the habit likes and the habit dislikes and the, the irritations and the, 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 the fantasies that really are running through us most of the time, but we're largely unawake to them or unaware of them because of the fact that we're more or less flowing along with them in a semi-trance-like, dream-like state. And we sit down with the intention to be awake and aware and present. And every time we wake up within the sitting, we're essentially waking up out of a stream of conditioning. And we're waking up to it so we can start to see it. And in, there's, a, there's a title of a, a travel book that a, a monastic in the Thai tradition wrote about his sort of sacred pilgrimage through India, where he traveled with, with one um, attendant. They traveled through a, a, a pilgrimage through the holy Buddhist sites in India on foot. 
And the title of the, the travelogue was Rude Awakenings. <laughs> and uh, having traveled to India, I, can, I, I think I have a sense of what he meant by that. But practice itself, uh, I think, will provide us, if we're lucky, with several kinds of rude awakenings. We realize, wait a minute, that's how I am. I had no idea. That's what my mind is obsessed with. That's what I'm, my biggest fears are. That's what I'm so ashamed of. We start to really open to that in the simplicity of the sitting. And the premise is that in becoming conscious to conditioning and becoming awake to our conditions, we are now in a position to better and fill in the blank with your favorite phrase, but we're in a better position to collaborate with, we're a better position to creatively reimagine, we're, a better, we're in a better position to improvise or dance with the conditions we're experiencing in a way that I would say preserves the skillful, preserves the good, preserves what's wholesome in what we've received in our conditioning and allows us to take stock of what's not so helpful, what's not so skillful, what's not um, wise or wholesome. And we can either abandon the unwholesome to use kind of traditional Buddhist language, or I might say we learn to integrate and transform the unwholesome um, with, with more wholesome qualities. So there's a, there's a developmental evolution in an improving way when we're able to be awake to to conditions or to our conditioning. And I think this leads up nicely to a question that I received over email a couple of weeks ago in response to a, a talk um, where the, the member said, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned in your talk. And that is once you notice the family upbringing conditioning, so essentially when you notice, you become aware of your conditioning, what's the next step? That's what the essence of the question is. What's the next step? They continue saying, I have really noticed this when parenting. We only know how to parent from what we were parented like. And I catch myself many times just defaulting to my parents' reactions to things with my kids or self. I'm really good at being mindful when it happens. That's a good first step. I'm really good at being mindful and catching myself in the act. But I'm not so good at what to do once you're once I'm aware of the conditioning? And they say, any tips? <laughs> I love it. Because <clears throat> that really is, uh, in some ways, an essential question of pra around practice. When we sit down, we create uh, an ongoing practice habit to pay attention. And that intention of paying attention starts to reveal layers of conditioning over time. And not all of it is, is welcome. Like we get the rude awakenings, like, am I really like that? Is that what I do when, am I just sounding like my dad? Am I, am I just a kind of a, 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 a bad software program that, uh, that can't get updated? And this question made me, it reminded me of an interaction I had with my first Dharma teacher, Rodney Smith. Um, 
and I, I was, I can't remember if it, if it was my question to him or if he was responding to another student's question, but the, the, there was a similar question posed to my teacher, Rodney, where the question was something like, you know, I can be relaxed on my cushion and I can be choicelessly aware of what's arising moment to moment. And I can see my habit patterns and I can see my reactive patterns and I can be equanimous and non-reactive to all of it. I can just sit on my cushion like a, like a contented chicken minding her nest. But how is doing that? How is being kind of equanimous and observant of these conditions of my experience going to help me be a better person in the world? How is this going to improve my engagement in the world? And Rodney um, gave a very sharply pointed answer. And I would say he, I think his, his style of teaching was definitely influenced by his teachers. And he had many Buddhist teachers, but he also studied with Krishnamurti himself. And he also worked with uh, Sri Nisargatra Maharaj, a very iconoclastic direct teacher from India of the last century. So in that vein, Rodney said, you need to find out who you are. You find, need to find out who you really are, not who you think you are. You need to find out who you really are and then see what you get up to. And then he said, kind of a, I still remember it. He said, the Buddha Dharma, the Eightfold Path is not a flow chart to tell you what to do at every juncture of your life. And I, as soon as he said that, you know, it was like being pulled up by the back of my neck or feeling the rug pulled a little bit because here I'd been reading and studying and practicing, looking at what does the eightfold path say? What do I have to do on the, to be on the eightfold path and be a good meditator? And this, this phrase that the, the Buddha Dharma is not a flow chart. But he's, and, he, and he kind of mocked it a little. He's like, you know, when you get to this, if you get to this situation then, and, you, and you have this experience, turn right. <laughs> or if you get to here, if you get to this crossroad and you're not sure what to do, go, go left. You know, we're all in a way, and I think this is what, he, is what he's speaking to. We're all looking for a, a guide on, on how to be. Or, or how to engage. And yet what Rodney was saying, and I agree with him now, is that the Buddha Dharma is not telling us what to do per se. It's giving a, us a map into ourselves to awaken to who we really are. And from that first person experience of awakening to who you really are, not again, who you think you are or who you shape yourself with thoughts and, and concepts, but who you are in your heart. That recognition allows us, and this is kind of the theme of my talk tonight, allows us to be awake to our conditioning and then be able to start to improvise with our conditioning in a way that is informed or infused or held by compassion and wisdom. And I use the word improvise specifically because that's 
essentially what, you know, one of the arts that I love is jazz and jazz artists learn to listen to the conditions of a piece. They learn to listen to the rhythm. They learn to understand the, the conditions of the harmony, the melody, but they improvise on it. They make it their own and they express a new rendering of beauty through their unique voice. And I think all art does this. It takes all the history of traditions that preceded. The artist take, absorbs all of that, but then they sit with it in their own being and creatively come up with a new formulation, a new expression that is meaningful, at least to them and, and, and likely to others. So in reflecting on the student's question around family conditioning and what we do, what's the next step? How do we, how do we live beyond the, the conditioning that we've received? Um, <clears throat> it also occurred to me that one way of describing the contemplative journey is that our awareness is confronting the reality of our experience as it is. You hear this a lot in Buddhism, that we're, we're training the mind to see things as they are, or to see things as they arise in our experience. And <clears throat> that confrontation has lots of rude awakenings, as I was saying, you know, whether it's to pain or to, to, to psycho-emotional uh, challenges or surprises. But that confrontation with the way things are, in a sense, is a little bit of a culture shock for ourself. That our sense of self that's defined and, and formed by thoughts and ideas that we kind of hold ourselves fixed by, our sense of self is always coming up against the hard truth of the way things are. So, you know, we might... So let's, as a simple example, let's say you see yourself as a healthy person. I like to see myself as a healthy person. We do yoga together. We meditate. We try to eat well. We get, try to get good rest. And yet, life inevitably, whether it's COVID or another illness or just the aging process, but inevitably that, 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 that image of, a, of being healthy is going to be confronted by the truth of life. And I know, you know, just getting through the communication through email, I know many of people in this group are wrestling with loss of loved ones, loss of pets, loss of one's own health, getting an illness or a scare. And when life confronts us with these sort of uh, unavoidable conditions, our sense of self can, can really literally reel in, in a shock. We're, we just don't know what to do. We don't, our normal strategies don't hold together anymore. And so even though, you know, I know life will be bringing this for us all at some point. I would say practice, one way of looking at practice is that it is a, it's a 
it's an opportunity to, in a sense, get hip to the truth of things while we can, while we have our resources, while we have an ability to train ourselves to adapt to this culture shock of the way things are. <clears throat> and I want to put an asterisk on that and say, again, this isn't about becoming passive to injustices in the world. So I just want to make sure that's that I'm not trying to assess the save that or assert that, but this isn't about, you know, adjusting to conditions. So you no longer struggle or, or, or um, pour energy into activism or caring for, for equity or any of that. It's more to the, the sense of ourself that's engaged with those conditions. And a lot of suffering in life comes, not all, not all suffering, but a lot of suffering comes from the kind of the collision between what our sense of self wants and what's happening. And, and the meditation just reveals that, particularly when we struggle, when we, when we encounter challenge. And so in thinking about this idea of practice as, a, as exposing a kind of self-culture shock, I, um, I started thinking about my own experiences of liter literal culture shock in, in my time abroad um, and just in traveling. And as I was reflecting on this, one of the, I would say, the, the most disruptive, challenging forms of culture shock I had was just after graduating from college, I went to Taiwan for one year and then ultimately went back for another year uh, after a year in between in India. But when I got to Taiwan in the summer of 1997, um, I, was, I was there, I went there because my best friend had gone ahead of me and um, I couldn't figure out how to navigate the career office at my college. Um, and he just said, you know, I can get a job for you here. If you get your plane ticket, you got a job. And that sounded pretty good to me. I would be teaching. I thought I could be abroad. So I was, I was very excited about this. And then, and then I arrived and I uh, landed in Taipei and I stayed in, just outside in the borough of Taipei. But that whole urban area of Taipei is kind of in a bowl surrounded by mountains. Um, but there were mountains I never saw because back then, and I'm, I'm told by the same friend that who has gone back that they've cleaned up their pollution, that the air quality is much better. But when I went, it was, it was an apocalyptic nightmare pollution scenario. It was just smog everywhere. Um, <clears throat> this is again, in 97, long before the scare of, of pandemics and things, but everybody was wearing a mask out in the street, primarily to try to limit the pollution that was getting inhaled. And, and not to get into TMI or too much information, but you know, blowing your nose would, would just produce this black snot of pollution. And on top of the pollution, I had a really hard time adjusting to the food. Um, I had a hard time finding food that I liked. I was trying to be a vegetarian at the time, and that was challenging. I'm come, I'll come back to the food later. But just, you know, I, I tried studying Chinese in college. Um, that's another whole story that was a kind of a nightmare for me because um, I was, <laughs> just wasn't able to pick up the tones. 
at all. But but communication was very very challenging for a long time, and 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 that contributed to the shock. But there was a more of a a, a cultural thing where um, I was very conscious of being foreign. There just weren't that many foreigners in Taipei at the time. And wherever I went, I would hear, hello, how are you? Hello, hello, how are you? Hello. Everywhere. And people were always calling to me. And, and then when I got to teaching, and I had my first classroom was sixth, seventh graders teaching them English. I remember going to students' desks to sort of correct their writing or give suggestions or something. And every time I'd be pointing to their page saying, hey, look at this, I, I noticed that their eyes were staring at my arm and that a whole sort of cluster of their friends in the class had sort of gotten around us and were also staring at my arm. And, and one of the bold students would take their hand and just rub their fingers against my, my, um, my forearm. And kind of this, it's hard to describe, it was sort of this almost... They were scared, but also intensely curious about what was going on with my forearm. And I, at first, I was like, what is this strange custom here? I don't understand. What is this fetish with forearms? <laughs> and it turned out, I, and I had to learn, learn it from some other teachers there, that um, body hair was just fascinating to these kids. They'd never seen body hair on forearms. Or at least the kind of body hair that I had, just and and I qu I quickly copped on to the fact that um, the body hair I have on my forearms gave me the moniker, the nickname amongst them as the Holdza Lao Shir, and Holdza in Chinese is is monkey, <laughs> so they were calling me monkey teacher, which you know at the time I was trying to be the the respectful dignified English teacher here there to teach. And there, and every time I walk in, here comes the, the, the monkey teacher. <laughs> and, um, and these, these, these things, even though they, I knew they were harmless, even though I knew they were just fun and, and, and playful really got under my skin after a few months, you know, they, it just started to, to, to really bug me. And I remember complaining, I, I wrote to my, my yoga teacher back in New York. I wrote to him and I said, you know, I know you've traveled and lived abroad for a long time and I don't mean to vent, but I'm having a hard time here. And I complained about what getting kind of harassed on the bus by hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? Everywhere you're going. Um, and, and I talked about the dynamic in the classroom. And I remember getting a letter back from him saying, it sounds like you're, you're really having a hard dose of culture shock. He said, my, my best advice is learn to play with it. Learn to play with it. And so I, I, I took that to heart and, and really started, you know, when people said, hello, how are you? I said, ni hao ma, ni hao ma. I'd say, speak back in Chinese. And they thought that was funny. And there was a lot more playfulness in my engagement with, with people um, in Taiwan. And stemming out of that playfulness, I remembered... Stemming out of that playful, playfulness, I, um, I remember that um, there was a, a local near my friend's apartment that was kind of 
they seem to be making overtures to be to develop a friendship with us. That's the way I look at it. Um, he worked at the scooter shop around the corner and and on these blocks, I just remember them in in in, in the section of Taipei that we were in, there were the, every block had like three or four scooter shops and wedding shops. Like there was just wedding shop after scooter shop after wedding shop after scooter shop. And I was just like, how can there be this many scooters and wedding shops in one block, let alone an entire city? But we got to talking to this guy and eventually um, his name is Chen. And eventually Chen extended an invitation for dinner. Now, and I, I, in setting this part of the story up, I should let you know that again, my Chinese was pretty bad. I, I could get a few words here or there, but my friend that I was with, he had studied Chinese in high school and in college, and he was pretty fluent. So he was a bit my, like my translator, my, my guide through, through these interactions. So through my friend, they arranged to have for us to go over there and have dinner. And in general, you know, I, I had done a little bit of study about Chinese culture before going, and I knew that there was, you know, real importance on uh, in social interactions in, in for, for people to save face, for people to not lose face. So uh, publicly insulting or being rude in public, whether it's in a, in a home situation or out, out and about, this, this causes someone to lose face, and that can be sort of disastrous culturally or disaster, disastrous socially. And that's, I just want to, that's the prelude for what brought me into dinner or how I went into dinner. Um, but as I was reviewing in my mind um, what that dinner was like, I then had the thought, hang on, I wonder if it's in your journal from that time. I wonder if this dinner is, 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 is uh, sort of archived in your journal. And sure enough, I dug up my journal the other day and found the, this, this, uh, this dinner that we had at Chen's house. So I'll share with you a little bit from the journal, and then I'll try to extrapolate out from what I didn't write in the journal. But <clears throat> the story is that I said the other night, Cyrus and I, that, that was my friend, Cyrus and I had dinner at Chen's house. We were seated in his bedroom around a tiny table. It was just Cyrus and myself. Chen and his mother catered to our culinary delight. Now, there's a tone of sarcasm here that you may not pick up. So culinary delight wasn't actually culinary delight. It was something, it was a culture shock of culinary something. Um, I said, again, sarcastically, the food was so good, I almost don't know where to begin. And and I should pause here just to say, I really came to love Taiwanese food, Chinese, I like Chinese food, Taiwanese food. Um, but there was a break-in phase where I had to learn what I could eat and what I couldn't eat. And um, I said here that we were first served, and, and you see, after this image of we're sitting in, in Chen's bedroom around a tiny little table, and his mother, apparently was his only family member, um, he and he and his mother would would come in and out of our room. They didn't sit to have dinner with us, which is what I was expecting, you know, to have a sit down family dinner. They basically served us, so we were royalty of some sort in the bedroom, being uh, sort of uh, receiving tray after tray of very uh, what seemed labor intensive and beautiful food, although not so much to my palate of liking. 
Um, I said, first we had watermelon with strange seeds. And then there was that dried pastry thing that I'd seen in the bakeries, this dried pastry that had desiccated meat on it and sort of shredded dried meat on pastry. In my opinion, again, this is my cultural um, provincialism. I, I thought, you know, they, they, they had these beautiful pastries that they made in the bakery and then they like sprinkled desiccated meat on top of it. And I was as a vegetarian, I'm like, why did you have to ruin that croissant? And then I said the raw, and then, then, then they served raw oysters marinated in garlic. There was some spicy spinach and oh boy, then came out the duck feet. And it was a big platter of duck feet. And this little table that we were sat at was now covered with big trays of, of well-prepared food. And I didn't know what to do with the duck feet. And while I was thinking about what I was going to do with the duck feet, a tray of what I learned from my teaching at the school, but a tray of thousand-year-old eggs were served. Now, back then, I'll describe to you what these, these eggs look like in a moment. But back then, um, I remember at the kindergarten where I taught, one day at snack time, they, they served these thousand-year-old eggs. And I asked the, the Chinese teacher that I was working with, I said, how do they make these eggs? And I don't know what she said, but I didn't understand it. So I asked somebody else, and the word on the street amongst the other native-speaking teachers, i.e. the foreigners, was that these eggs were preserved in fermented horse urine. And there I was as a guest at this table being served thousand year old eggs up against my limit of what I thought I could handle. And, and I, there, I mean, there was a few other things that I remember from, from this time where the food was such that I just, I couldn't really think about it without starting to get a gag reflex. So the, my, my capturing of it in the journal isn't quite as good, but while our hosts were sort of coming in and out of the room to see how we were enjoying the food, my friend Cyrus and I realized we had a problem on our hands because we had to figure out how to make it seem like some of this con food was consumed so that, that our hosts would save face, that we wouldn't offend our hosts. But we also knew that if we attempted to eat particularly these eggs, um, there could be trouble. I mean, I just didn't know how I was going to get it down. Now, for those of you that don't know, haven't seen these eggs before, I, I did look them up online recently to just to review my memory of, of what, what they are like. Um, and, and, and again, I just want to say, these are culturally relative things. You know, I know that I know Taiwanese love these eggs. There's lots of delicacies that Taiwanese love and, and that's great, but I'm just expressing my cultural shock at, at confronting these things that I didn't know how to deal with. But these eggs were essentially preserved duck or chicken eggs that were preserved in a mixture of clay, salt, quicklime, and rice hulls for several weeks to months. And through this process of preserving, 
the yolk becomes a dark green to, to gray color. So the, the, the yellow yolk becomes a, a very dark green, like a jade green, dark green, gray color with a creamy consistency, says Wikipedia, a creamy consistency and strong flavor due to hydrogen sulfate and ammonia. Now, when I imagine going to a restaurant and the server saying, so we were serving some eggs with a, a nice uh, bouquet of hydrogen sulfate and ammonia. Um, the, the white part of the egg became a dark brown translucent jelly with a salty flavor. That's the way Wikipedia described it. So again, we were in a situation and um, while I was kind of melting down in panic around what to do, my friend, and I'm not proud of this, but my friend opened the window and took one of the eggs and hurled it out the window saying, look, we've consumed one. We, and I'll say we loved it. It was very good to eat. And I thought, yeah, okay, well, at least we've, we've made a dent into the, in these and, and, we, and, and we, can, we can escape saving our face. Except for the fact that when we did come, it did come time to leave and we left out the door we came in, what I realized on the way out, which I didn't realize on the way in, is that the window that we were having our dinner near was right over the door. And on, uh, beyond the window, in a way that we couldn't see because of the darkness of the evening, there was a grate. So what happened was, and we didn't see this until we got downstairs, my friend had thrown the egg out the window only to hit the grate and crumble literally at the footsteps out the front door. So now we're out, we're out leaving the front door and our hosts are looking down at the thousand year old egg crumbled on the floor. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what do we do here? What do we do here? But my friend, again, was slick in the tongue with Chinese. And he said a few things and I, there was something like, buhao isa, which means I'm so embarrassed, buhao isa. And I heard my name, I said, Josh, or something like that. I mean, this is my rudimentary Chinese, but that's more or less what he said. And as soon as he said it, our host, Chen, looked at me and he kind of smiled softly and he patted my shoulder and like gave me, like held my hand and squeezed my hand and said, well, come back again soon. Meaning he was not offended. He was not uh, upset with us. He seemed to be quite okay with me and us. So we took our leave. We, we started to head back to my friend's apartment. And as soon as we got around the corner, I said, what did you say to him? <laughs> what the hell did you say? And he said, I just explained to him that uh, you are new to Taiwan and that you still hadn't learned how to use chopsticks properly. <laughs> and there I was, we were off the hook. Now you may be wondering, what does this have to do with the Dharma? What does this have to do with conditioning? 
what I think my friend Cyrus evinced or showed in the story is an ability to improvise with cultural knowledge. I'm not saying the throwing the egg out the window. I'm not saying the defenestration of the egg was the right thing, but the ability to improvise with language, with understanding how to save face, seemed to smooth out this, this set of conditions. And I want to propose that practice, I've said this elsewhere, but practice, our meditation practice, is a kind of cultural flight simulator in the sense that we, again, we sit down with ourselves and confront the way things are, not necessarily with skills to handle the way things are. And I think that's what why the Dharma practice is a kind of um, continuing education for adulthood. That we, we get to a certain age in adulthood that's been conditioned by so many forces, not all of them great. And we practice becoming aware of them in the kind of the simulator of our practice. And I describe practice as a simulator because I like the idea of how pilots go in to, to train where the simulator replicates real life conditions that are challenging. And so when we go into our own practice as a simulator, often the things that come up are the things in our life that are challenging for us, that are, that are difficult, that we don't necessarily have um, I'm not, the skills. And I'm not saying these are externally defined skills, but we don't necessarily have the skills that we aspire to be practicing with or playing with. So the idea is that by sitting down in stillness, by listening closely to our experience, listening closely to the way thoughts come and go, we wake up to our habituated self. We become very conscious of our internal patterns. And then we're able to practice being with those conditions of ourselves with the developmental skills of an artist, learning to how to use what we, is, what we deem as skillful or helpful, learning to put aside what is not so skillful, not so helpful. And the thing, I'll close here, the thing that allows that to be possible I think, and don't take this as, a, as, a, as my absolute statement on this, but this is something I've been reflecting on, and I, I hold this up as a statement for reflection. But it occurs to me that what makes both being conscious of conditions possible and allows for the freedom to generate new conditioning, the thing that allows that is awareness itself. We weren't able to be aware and to actually sense awareness independent of what we're aware of. We would be essentially defined by our conditioning. We would have no choice. We would no, have no agency. So the thing that it's not, and it's not a thing, but the condition of consciousness that we celebrate in our meditation 
allows us to be centered in a position of knowing from which we can make wiser, more compassionate decisions. And the Buddha said something to this effect. This is a, this is a pretty dense statement, but he uttered this, this statement. He said, there is an unborn, undying, unmade, unconditioned. In short, there is an unconditioned. There's something that is unconditioned. If there were not that unconditioned, if there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, you could not know and escape. You could not know and escape here from the born, the become, the made, and the conditioned. So that's the, the way the, 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 the statement is translated. But in essence, if I were to simplify it, he's saying there is an unconditioned without which there is no escape from the conditioned. So when I heard this, you know, the unconditioned can sound very abstract. It can sound, you know, weirdly metaphysical, like the unconditioned is some sort of dimension in deep space that your consciousness gets projected into when your meditation goes really well. <laughs> I used to think that like there's an alternative dimension that once my meditation gets solid, then I'm going to be blasted into this alternative dimension of the unconditioned. And I don't, I'm, that may be true or not, I don't know. But my experience, and this is what I offer for reflection, is that when we really rest within ourselves, observing our experience, we see that the experience of consciousness, the light of awareness that shines on what's happening, that knows what's happening, is not itself conditioned by what's happening. So in our own direct experience, the, at the core of yourself, there is an element of knowing, of awakeness, of awareness that equally, is, equally knows the sound of a bird, equally registers a twinge in your knee or a numbness in your foot, equally knows a painful thought about the state of our world, equally remembers and knows sort of a, maybe a traumatic memory from the past or a, a fearful anticipation of the future. There is this dimension of being, which I think the Buddha isn't intimating or pointing to of the unconditioned dimension of ourself, the core un unconditioned dimension of ourselves that becomes awake to both conditioning and to its own unconditioned nature. And from waking up to that and realizing that there is this, this unconditioned element, we now are in a much better position to navigate, transform, and heal the conditions in the world that continue to produce suffering. And that starts at home. That's, that begins at home. But then it, it, it becomes a sensibility that we carry into the world with. So may we all practice well, may we all practice with sincerity, may we all practice together, and may we wake up to our conditioning and the unconditioned within that.
Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And as always, I hope some of the reflections I give uh, stimulate and open up some avenues for exploration in your own practice. And I look forward to hearing from you about any insights or questions or observations you have. Feel free to email me at josh at joshsummers.net. I'd love to hear from you. And, um, and if you'd like to practice with me and Terry, do consider checking out our work in the Riverbird Sangha, where you can practice online classes of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, and see how all three practices work in a synergistic way to help transform your body, energy, and heart to apprehend the everyday sublime. And lastly, conditions in the world are conditions in the world, and they are aflame as they have been for centuries, but they're particularly on flame now, or in, in flame now, I should say. And just an acknowledgement of the fear, the agitation, the, the grief and pain that so many are facing right now. I just want to wish you my best and, and, and really hope and hold the aspiration that our practice, not just the practice I'm doing or you're doing, but our collective practice in, in joining forces with sanghas all over the globe, May our collective practice uh, be a benefit and support to the long-term well-being, happiness, and peace of all beings. So keep practicing, stay safe, stay strong, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.